did a class this morning, and uh, it's a leadership class, and, um, you know, trying to teach about being a leader, and, uh, you know, I thought well, there's probably not a better chapter in the Bible than Isaiah chapter 6. So we spent two hours talking about Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 9, and uh, I'll just give you a couple of little parts that we talked about this morning. I'll try because I have with me four pages of notes from a two-hour class. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, God is the maker of real leaders. Only he does it. The kind of leaders that we're talking about uh, can only be raised by God. And um, how does he do it? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, we see this beautiful sequence a sequence of eternity, the effect on my life, what will happen, step A through B, C, what, how does it go, what happens to us, and what does God want to have happen to us. And we know this chapter so well, and I know you know it, and, but let's read it together. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the year that King Isaiah died... I know, I know, it's amazing. Uh, just a, uh, a, a great thought that a year when the throne was empty, God opened up the heavens and showed Isaiah an eternal throne, a throne that would never be empty. When his throne is empty, when the throne in our hearts is empty, the visions start pouring in, the rhemas happen, the word of God speaks to us, and all of a sudden we see clearly there is now in our life, in our heart, room for him. King Uzziah dies, and, and Isaiah saw a beautiful vision, a visible image. God enabled him to see an inconceivable thing. No man can see God, but here Isaiah sees the vision, and uh, what does he see? A divinely imposed vision of the Lord, Adonai, and in John chapter 12, we read that it's Jesus Christ. Of course, it's Jesus Christ. Who else would he possibly see but Jesus? Isaiah, standing on the earth, looking into eternity, hindered by time, hindered by space, but clarity of mind, an empty throne, and he sees, sees something that he has never seen before, that very few people have seen. He sees the Lord. He observes the throne, an unthroned personality, a person, not 5,000 gods, not a spirit or mother nature or some movement he sees a person a person that we know very well jesus how beautiful how clear my daughter-in-law is uh, pregnant my beautiful daughter-in-law is pregnant and uh when when she was first pregnant we we said we talked about the baby you know it was the baby and then uh, some time went by, and then we found out, or she found out, uh, you know, that it was a boy. So now we referred no longer 
to it as a baby, but as the boy. The boy is coming. There's a little boy coming. And then a few weeks later, my son and his beautiful wife come to me, and they tell us that they have a name, and his name is going to be Grant. And guess what happened? It is no longer a baby. It is no longer a boy. It is Grant. We now know him. We see him. It is very clear to me. And this is Isaiah for me. The whole Old Testament talks about this Messiah, this mystical figure, this person that is coming, the covenant, the promise. And then Isaiah starts talking, and it clears up real fast. It's Jesus. All the way through Isaiah 53, unmistakably Jesus Christ, undeniably, no way, Jesus Christ from Nazareth, the Messiah. And it is clear, and it's clear to Isaiah. And he is sitting up on a throne, and he has the authority And he is ruling, and he is in charge. And despite all the rebellion, all the idolatry, all the minds that are wandering away, Jesus Christ is on the throne, and he is sitting, and grace is reigning, and he is in charge. And when we see him, this is something I realized. We never see Jesus any other way than in the shadow of the cross. A thousand years from now, when we look at him, we will always remember Calvary. It'll never be void of that moment, those days, that those hours. We will always think of our Jesus and keep in mind what he did and what he accomplished. That is the part that makes him so beautiful. And I think Isaiah did not know about Calvary, but he saw the Lord, and it did something to him. It did something magnificent to him. It changed him, and Christ comes into focus. And uh, he is sitting there on his throne, enthroned grace. And he is high and lifted up. Of course he is. God lifted him up. God raised him up. After Calvary, God put him on a throne, high and lifted up, highly exalted him. And he is the king of kings and the most high God. And his train fills the temple. And, uh, you know, the outer garment filling the temple. And I, I, I don't know if he saw Christ in a temple in heaven or if he was in the temple, if Isaiah was in the temple seeing Christ. And I, I like to think the second one maybe. I tried to kind of figure it out and learn, but I like the idea that Isaiah is in the temple. Where else would he be? And he is tuned in to God, and he sees him. And Jesus reveals himself in a beautiful vision. And all his glory is coming down from heaven. And the entire temple is filled with his glory. And he sees Jesus. And it's a beautiful moment. An unbelievably beautiful moment. And it's, it's you know, inconceivable in one sense. But we know what he's talking about. We are very aware. We, we, know, we are reading this with him, and we are right there with him. The, the seraphims are around him, and they, res, they respond beautifully to the presence of God. All their beauty, all the celestial beauty that they have, they cannot stand his glory. They have to cover their face in his glory, and they have to cover their feet. There's no self-effort. There's no mention of their own strength in in the presence of God, they hide themselves with their wings. Two wings to cover their face, two wings to cover their feet, and two wings ready to fly and serve and be available unto God. Uh, this is 
how the angels, these create, created beings, would be in the presence of God. And they're the glory of God, too much for them, too much for them to understand. So what do they do? They cry one to another. It's starting to sound a little bit like us. It sounds, it sounds a little bit like what we just heard. What else could you possibly do when you get a taste of the glory of God but cry to each other, corporately worshiping, corporately singing, corporately standing here, raising our hands together, one to another in a beautiful way. Holy, holy, holy. A beautiful expression of consecration. Their hearts are bursting. They cannot stand to do anything else. Repeatedly, in the, in the Hebrew, it's, it sounds like they are constantly repeating the same thing over and over again, over again. That's all they can do in His presence. There are no words except these words. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty. The Lord God of hosts. This is the appropriate response even for us when we sit in church. The whole earth is full of His glory. I find I find it so fascinating to think of Isaiah standing in the temple, looking up and seeing the glory of God. But the angels that are around the glory of God, looking down onto heaven, and guess what they see? The glory of God, right here, right down here where we are. And we have missed it, and we don't always see it, and we're walking around clueless and lost. And and uh, this is really the point. We're not we're not waiting for some magnificent, extraordinary vision of Jesus Christ on, in, the, in the throne room. He is here right now. The fullness of God is everywhere. The whole earth is full of it. And if he is full anywhere, he is full in the church where he is the fullness of Christ. And we don't need Isaiah's vision. We have it just like my future, my, no, my present grandson. I see Jesus right here, right now. On the throne, he is present, and he is here with us. And we can sense him. We know he is with us, and we know that he loves us. The posts of the door move. I love that. Jesus, the vision of Jesus rocking my world, my little tiny world, my little self-importance, my little house, my little room. My little car, my little work, my you know, my family, and then the vision of Jesus Christ and my everything in me shakes. Everything about me, everything that we are, everything around me, is is shaken by the glory of God. And then a beautiful response, the sequence. Then the first then. What happens? The vision produces a response by me. What is it? Oh, it's, it's bad. It's bad. Oh, no. All of a sudden, I, with, my eyes medit- with my eyes seeing Jesus, with meditating on Jesus, with the real- as I'm reading my Bible, as I'm sitting in church and I see Jesus, what happens to me? Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I am in trouble. I am in deep trouble. I'm- he bursts out in an agonizing cry. Whoa. Woe, woe is me. Woe is me. In the presence of God, woe is me. You know, can you imagine Isaiah saying, Hey, Lord, 
I got an opinion I'd like to give to you. Um, you know, hey, Lord, I got some thoughts. Listen up. Can you imagine uttering any other words when we see the glory of God? Can you imagine talking about my accomplishments or my strengths or my abilities or how much I've served or my ministry or what we accomplished last summer or a year ago or 10 years ago or how much Bible reading I've done or how many books I've read? Can you imagine in the presence of God saying anything else? And the answer is absolutely not. There's nothing else to say. Woe is me. Woe is me. The appropriate response. I am a man. Isn't that the truth? He was never more human than at that moment. He was never more a man man than at that moment in a bad way. Fully aware of the gigantic, infinite distance between him and God. I am a man of what? Unclean lips. The dirtiest, most vile part of a human being. His lips. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's over. It's revealed. There's no more hiding it. James chapter 3 comes to mind, you know, just this kind of difficult realization that everything out of my mouth is pathetic in the presence of God. And I have no words. And everything I've ever said is embarrassing to me in his presence. And uh, that devil inside, that little devil inside of me, that vile thing, that dragon, is the first thing that I mention. I am a man of unclean lips. And the vision is so great and the glory is so great that it doesn't just make me recognize my own sin. It makes me recognize everybody's sin everybody's depravity, the whole earth, everybody, all of humanity, anyone that has ever walked on this planet. That is how great the glory of God is. That's how great Jesus Christ is on the throne, immediately penetrating my self-awareness and awareness of humanity. We're all in trouble. We're a disaster. We're a walking disaster without Jesus Christ. we We are completely destroyed by him, and we bring nothing to the table, nothing We have nothing to offer, and we are completely undone, as he so beautifully says, undone and lost. And, you know, I would say a broken broken reed. A, A good way to describe Isaiah is to say that he was a broken reed at that moment. But there's more. We know there's more. The next then... After he realizes that my eyes have seen the king, the next response, my response, or God's response, sorry, is to send me grace. I have seen the Lord. I have heard the angels. And now he's going to touch me with grace. He's going to make me feel his grace. The reality of me in my life is that I need to get to a point where I can feel his grace. I am so aware of my depravity that the only thing that can possibly happen is that I can feel his grace. All my senses are involved. Everything is engaged. Jesus Christ is reigning. He's on the throne. I'm aware of who I am in his shadow. And grace touches me and moves me and changes me and cleans us and changes my life. Fire from the altar. What else could possibly clean a man? Fire 
from a bloody altar of Jesus Christ. The purging, cleansing fire that takes over my old man and destroys him and gives him a new one. And I am a new person. And it's, and it's, it's the reality of my life now. The finished work has spoken. God has done his thing. I am painfully aware of it. And I am rebuilt and reorganized in my thoughts. Grace is reigning. Hallelujah. It has touched me. And I could say so much more, but, uh, you know, what, what, is, what is the only response to grace? Well, this, just in closing, Jesus Christ saying, speaking, asking a question, two questions. Whom shall I send? To be honest, it's heartbreaking. The question is heartbreaking. If you think about Jesus Christ on Calvary, what he did, the blood he spilled, the pain he suffered, that he even had to ask this, that we are so dense in our minds and so blind and so ignorant of his throne and his grace, eight billion human beings trying to pretend that they are good. The reality of humanity is that we are so ignorant So much so that even after such a magnificent act as Calvary, Jesus Christ from his throne has to say, you know, ask the question, whom shall I send? And I'm not, this is not a condemning thought. This is just a sequence, the reality of who I am and what happens to me when I see Jesus Christ, who is right here with us right now. And then the second question. Whom shall I send? Whom whom shall I send, Jesus Christ? Whom will go for us? The Trinity. Speaking, maybe. What a beautiful question. Right away, the heart of Jesus Christ exposed, revealed all he cares about. Let's get to the point. Okay, you saw the throne. I'm going to give you grace. That's done with. Now, the next subject. i got to send somebody. Why? Because I love people. I died for them. I care for them. All, the only thing, the only thought in my mind is people and sending people to, to reach people. And, uh, you know, you know the rest of it. In class this morning I said, I won't read the rest. It's for you to read. It's between you and God. The, the answer to the question in the last part of verse 8 is for you to read privately between you and God. The answer to his question is not something I can impose on you or anybody can impose on you. You have to recognize Jesus here. You have to know who you are without him, and you have to taste grace. And then you have to know what Jesus Christ is about. And then you can say the same words that little Samuel said when he heard God speaking to him in that temple. Or Isaiah said, or Moses said, or so many said, or Jesus Christ said, Years in eternity past, long time ago, the same words we utter as a response to the throne of God and the vision. And then this beautiful anointing, which is the word go. So much power in that word. Such a, such a wonderful commandment for us. Such anointing in that word. It is, it is over us. The word go is over us, and it empowers me, and it gives me the motivation and directs me 
and clears my thoughts and my my desires and and we go with that word in our hearts and we serve with that word in our hearts we serve with the authority of the word of the word go that came straight from the throne room and it was given to us and we go in his name amen The word from Pastor Pete was so, uh, so good, so profound and precious, really, wasn't it? The holiness of God uh, um, standing on holy ground, uh, as it happened with Moses, and then later with Joshua, and then uh, I, I'll wrap it up here with a few, with a few thoughts. So, First uh, Kings nineteen, we have Elijah in a down. He's in a down mood. So, First Kings nineteen and um, verse four. <clears throat> so, Lord, we thank you for. That message we heard, and we are like Isaiah in this world. And we say, woe is me. Uh, then we, see, we, we say, lo, and then, then go. And, and God says, who will I send? And he says, send me. And all of us in this room, all of us, we were without you. We didn't believe, or we didn't care, or we we were lost. We had no capacity. We were living in a in a world we didn't understand. And and even now, hard, hardly do we understand it. But we see you. You honor us. We honor your son and you, the father, honors us. And we, we feel that in our hearts that has happened in our lives. And we want to help, help others. We want to help us and, and others find you and know you and touch the holiness, the reality, the awesomeness of who you are. And that awesomeness would, would move us in life, Lord. We would find you, know you, walk with you. Uh, bless these, these minutes together in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have a little sequence here. This is First uh, Kings is 18 with Elijah on the Mount Carmel. And he's very up. So we have up. By that I mean he is uh, spiritually effective, alive. He sees God. The fire comes down. The uh, worshipers of Baal are um, shamed. 
Elijah has this authority as a prophet. He's a mighty man. He's a mighty man. Now he goes down. So I I have that in my mind, First Kings 19, and how that happens to people like us. Jezebel gives a threat in verse 2. Jezebel said, sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also if I make not your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. He is a passionate man. It says we have like passion. The word is emotion. Elijah is emotional. And he hears that word, that uh, that message from the queen, Jezebel, and so he he panics. He feels bad. He's uh, verse four, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die, and said, "It is enough." Uh, talk about emotions, right? I said something to my wife this morning. I go, the problem with drugs, prescription drugs, illegal drugs, is that the problem with them is that when you're having a good time, you don't know that you're having a good time. And when you're having a bad time, you don't know that you're having a bad time. It's a good word. If I take over-the-counter drugs, which are handed out all the time, like they numb you, they, you just go like this, you're just a plane, you know. What, what's wrong with feeling bad? What's wrong with being down? What's wrong with finding some depression or some fear or anxiety or some worry? Aren't we human beings? Are we robotons, computerized like machines, or do we have feeling? And is this man of God up, and he's doing amazing, and then he goes down? And is that wrong? Aren't our emotions given to us from God so that we can live our life and live our life in reality? And when something is bad and it hurts me, what's wrong with being hurt? What's wrong with it? I'm hurt. I'm sad. I'm discouraged. I'm in trouble. I want to know if I'm in trouble. You take drugs, you don't know you're in trouble. You get high all the time or you just start numbing yourself to the pain of life. It's like you are made to find God and know God and live with God as this story tells us. Isn't it good? Okay. You may not go, you know, let's just bear with me. Be nice. Turn to your neighbor and just say, be nice tonight. Work on it, okay? Be nice. Why is it I don't drink alcohol? Because when I'm having a good time, I want to know I'm having a good time. Why is it? Why? You know, there you go. That's a good word for sobriety. And probably you will develop and grow through your pain. And you learn to be an adult 
and you learn how to manage life, and you learn how to comfort other people that need help. It's a good word. Okay. Let's go to uh, verse uh, 4. And he requested for himself that he might die. About it. How many of you have said, hey, Lord, if you could make that happen right now, I'll take it. I want to die. Anybody? Don't admit it. Yeah, yeah but let's admit it. No food poisoning. No suicide. No. We'll let God take us home. Yeah, no suicide. Okay. Verse 4. He says, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. For I am not better than my father's. I'm not better than my father's. Here's a little picture. Here's Elijah. And he just compares himself to his fathers, like the high. My fathers, I am not better than them. I'm not as good as them. He just compares himself with other people, like this, right? This is what he does. He's depressed. He feels he's failed somehow. He doesn't want to live. This happens. Verse 5, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. This is a good word. Just eat something. And be careful when you're depressed, you just go eat and go eat and go back to the refrigerator, eat again, and you're... Your workout was from the couch to the refrigerator and back and then back again. That's your workout. All right. So uh, the angel said, rise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals, cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. You think that's enough of that therapy? Go to sleep, get up, eat, and then go back to sleep and, and you're good. But no, there's more eating to go on. Verse verse uh, 7, the angel of the Lord came again the second time and said, rise and eat. He gets to eat again because the journey is too great for you. All right. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the Mount of God. And he came hither unto a cave and lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Let's write that down. What doest thou here? Doest thou here, Elijah? He says it twice. Verse 9 and verse 13. He says the same thing. And I wonder what he means. What are you doing here? This isn't like you. Is that what it means? What are you doing here in the cave? And the Bible teachers say this is the same cave that God put Moses in the cave when his glory passed by. It's like a cleft of the rock. It's like a sheltered area. And Elijah went there. Uh, maybe he wanted to, who, who knows, I do not know, I don't know that anyone really knows why, 
But I like to think that God is in this whole picture, and he's leading Elijah, and he puts him in that cave, because Elijah needs to see the glory of God. Like Pastor Pete said, Elijah needs, and I, when I am down, I need to see the glory of God. Uh, honestly, I feel that way about meeting together like we do by faith. And you, you precious believers, the Holy Spirit is going to show us one day. When we go to heaven, we're going to see the value of assembling together. In our weakness, when I am down, when I am saying I'd like to die, I come here to the assembly, and God puts me in that cleft, and he does some work on us. And here it is. Follow it with me, because it's really clear. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then there are three three things here that don't work. There are things that don't work when you are down, when you're in trouble, when you are are really thinking heavy thoughts, and you shouldn't be there, but you are. You shouldn't be in that place. You and I shouldn't be that severely affected by what Jezebel said. But we are, because we are emotional creatures. We can just get triggered, like something bad can happen. And it triggers all kinds of feelings and uh, attitudes and so on. And God says, what are you doing here? Where, where, psychologically, what are you doing here? Spiritually, what are you doing here? What's happened to you? I am for you, Elijah. I am with you, Elijah. I'm going to help you. And this story will help the people at 6025 Moravia Park Drive. Let's read it. Verse Ten, I have been very jealous of the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, that is not body life. When it's I and I only, that's not us. You know, you have to learn in life to have the I pronoun, but it also has to be changed to the us program, pronoun. Right? Us. We are the body. But I only, I am jealous. It says here, verse 10, and I am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains. It's right down here, number one. The wind rent the mountains. Now, to tear mountains apart by pieces, it has to be hurricane wind. Or a mountain to be ripped apart into pieces, because it says that. Strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. We got two here, earthquake. And then after that, there was the fire. 
And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in his fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Now here, let's look about about these words here. Think about it. What do they mean? What is it that Elijah is feeling? What is he experiencing by these loud, powerful, radical expressions in life in this world? It really means judgment. It means power, wrath, judgment. It happened when Jesus died on the cross. When he died on the cross, there was an earthquake. Like Jesus was judged by God. And Elijah is feeling judgment. And you and I feel that too, especially when you're down. You feel judgment. What did I do to get this? What? Maybe it's because of this, or maybe it's because of that. Where, where is God? God is, uh, he's dangerous. God, God is dealing with me. God is judging me. I got a problem. Where is God? And God put him in the cave. He gave him these three things. And then came the real answer. And it was a still, small voice. And I want to put here the word holiness that goes along with Pastor Pete's message. Holiness. The glory of God passed by. And the Lord spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. And I think that's the answer. We can be emotional, but hear the still, small voice. Your emotions may stir up an earthquake, a fire. Uh, what was it? the first word? Was what? Wind. Wind. What are, these are real things. But if I could, if I could, then just get real quiet and come before God in my heart and listen. He is not in the wind. Jesus took the wind so that it wouldn't be ours. He took the judgment so God would speak a still, small voice to you and I. That our meditation would be acceptable. That our love would be touching the heart of God. That our faith, and in the story, by the way, the next sequence is is that Elijah I'm going to send you to anoint three men, the king, right? Uh, the two kings, one king and, and the other one, they are written there, and then the prophet uh, Elijah. And I'll jump, jump to Elijah. He went to Elijah, who was plowing in a field, God told him to go to him, and he threw the mantle on Elijah, and Elijah had a calling. And uh, the the message I feel that I understand in the text is that uh, Elijah, 
he kind of wants it to end and he doesn't see the value of his ministry and he can't see the possibility of going on. But in, in effect, what happens, he hears a still small voice and God is saying, yeah, it's not over. I got another guy that I'm using. Your ministry is with seven miracles. Remember? Remember that teaching? There's, there's, there's a, I, w- I want to finish here. Elijah had seven miracles. Elisha, Elisha, if I spell it right, I didn't, I think, yeah, I did. He said, give me twice the spirit. Give me twice the spirit of Elijah, God. I want twice the spirit of Elijah. You see, there's a future in the church. Like God's not done with us. God's not done with you. There's a future in your life. And you you uh, say uh, like this Elijah this this one here he said uh, I I would like twice the spirit and and he got it and he had thirteen miracles in his lifetime and you would think it'd be fourteen but he died he was buried and then some um, a band of of men were coming and. They had, to, they had to bury somebody. They threw the dead man in Elijah's tomb, and that dead man came alive. That was the 14th miracle, which could, was, was performed after he was dead, but it was done by him, by in the sense of the body of Elijah. Uh, what I want to say, and I invite the whole church to be praying about our future as a ministry what I would love to think is that we will find our way. We will have a high, high times and we will also have other times. And in our, in our faith walk, God will correct us in our difficulties. God will lead us in the way and he will show us you are not the only one. There are 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal. And besides, there's a guy plowing in the field, and your calling as a prophet is going to pass on to him. And who is going to pass on and be the next pastor here in Baltimore Church in greater grace? And why wouldn't we be praying for that and believing that that will happen? Of course I believe that will happen. And, uh, and then in your life, how we pass on to our children. We pass on in our community. We pass on in our work. We pass on this amazing blessing. But it doesn't mean that you couldn't be discouraged, afraid, the wind, the earthquake, the fire, and just be so, like, so much wrapped up in this world. And then the Lord has a still small voice. And he's saying, no. I got my hand on you. You're going to anoint a king, another king, Jehu, and then you're going to find Elijah. You're going to anoint him, and he's going to, he's just going to be, let's read it. It's great. This is the end, but you got to look at this. It said, verse 19, so he departed and found Elijah, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. What is that? The coat, the cloak, the mantle. He threw it on him, 
That was it. The guy had a calling. God, Elijah cast the mantle on him, and that was all. He did. It doesn't say he convinced him, he talked to him, and he didn't say that he manipulated or gave him money or made a deal or a contract. None of that happened. It was spiritual transfer of authority and calling from one man of God to another man of God, from one woman of God to another woman of God. How amazing it is. Look at the next verse. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said, Go back. What have I done to you? Go back. What have I done to you? In a way, humanly, we are not doing anything to each other. In a strictly human sense, it is not something we are doing to each other. It is a spiritual effect of what God is doing with us. Why do we love each other? It is God. Why, why do we understand each other? It is God. Why do our lives glorify God? It is God. Why, why do we travel miles? Why in Europe do they go thousands of miles to go to Uricon and Russia? And India, why do they get on trains and go two two days on the top of a train through the countryside at 20 miles an hour to go to a conference in Mumbai? And it's like, Elijah said, what did I do to you? Go back. And the guy is going, I'm not going back. I'm in. I'm called. I got something going on in my life. So a man who said a little earlier, take my life, I am done, I'm not better than my father's, is now and is walking in something that you cannot explain. And God is saying to him in his heart, your guy, I'm using you for my purpose and it's not as bad as you think. I am with you and just hear my still small voice. No, Lord, I hear the wind and the earthquake and the fire, and it's terrible, and I want out. And I am down, and I'm depressed, and I'm eating and sleeping my way. And I want to eat again and sleep again, and I want to take, and I want to live like that. That's what I want to do. And the Lord is saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. I'll put you in the cave, and you're going to hear the still, small voice. You're going to be restored. You're going to be healed. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to be blessed. And you're going to meet Elijah in a field, cast your mantle on him, and he's going to stick to you like glue. Because it's me that's doing this work. That's amazing. Let's think that way about our church. Let's think that way about each other. Let's help each other in the calling that we have. There'll be good times and bad times, but that doesn't stop what God is doing. He'll put us in the cave, walk by. He will talk to us. He will help us, and he will lead us, and we'll do fine. And then one day it'll be over. We'll see the glory of God on the earth as it is in heaven, and we'll see what God has done and how he is glorified because he has done it all, because he loves you. He loves you. He really loves you. You are here glorifying him. He loves you. He is for you. He loves you. He is for you. He really does.
all of us, very much, very much. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Lord, uh, we want to jump up and down when we get out of our slump. We want to praise you all day and night. We just sing, sing to you, praise you when we get out of our our thing, whatever that is. We we do. Uh, we just say, "Wow, thank you, Lord." We thank you. You did that with so many men and women of God in the Bible, and you do it for us. In Jesus' name, if you are not a believer tonight, come to Christ. It's an invitation. Put the date in your Bible. Get a Bible. Put the date in there today, that today you accepted Christ. Today you put your trust in him. Today you started to pray to him. So today you put your heart in, in him and his gift of salvation to whoever believes. Believes in You might say, I, I'm not that good. Nobody here is. Nobody here is. You are, you are, you, all of us are the same before God and need Christ. Put your trust in him in Jesus' name. Lord, amen. Thank you, God. Amen.